Hi there. This is Thomas Spain, one of your hosts for the Best Practices podcast series from the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network. As you may have noticed, only our favorite episodes of Best Practices are archived now on your preferred podcast platform. But don't worry, if you want all the best practices for quality improvement and practice transformation that we have to offer, all 22 episodes of this podcast series are now available on the Mid-South PTN YouTube channel. That's the Mid-South PTN YouTube channel, and the link is available in the podcast show notes. Thanks, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to The Best Practices, the podcast where we explore the best stories of healthcare practice transformation from the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network. Our network a member of the National Transforming Clinical Practices Initiative, supports over 4,000 primary and specialty care clinicians across Tennessee, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Arkansas as they lead their practices to thrive in a value-based healthcare environment. And now your hosts, Dr. Thomas Spain and Kirkland Ahern-Jones. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Best Practices Podcast with the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network. I'm Dr. Thomas Spain, and I'm here with my co-host, Kirkland Ahern-Jones. We're excited about our topic this week, where we are discussing medication management, the issues surrounding medication management, and the opportunities related to quality improvement, patient safety, and how that fits into the context of practice transformation and preparation to thrive in an alternative payment model. We're excited to welcome our guest this week. Our guest is Dr. Amanda Mixon. She is uh, on faculty at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and has a wealth of expertise in medication management and quality improvement. So welcome, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Amanda. So, Amanda, I'm going to kick things off with our first question today. This podcast series is really about how practices can prepare to thrive in an alternative payment model, in an environment that... Uh, emphasizes value. And so I wonder if you might just start by talking to us a little bit about why medication management is such an important piece of preparing to thrive in value. Sure. Um, So I sort of think about medications more from the patient safety standpoint. Um, And we do know that unsafe care is usually low-value care. So I think that's how it relates to value-based care in general. For most patients who are seen in both specialty care and in primary care, they take medications. And those medications, although are prescribed for benefit, sometimes are associated with some harms or potential harms. So it's important, I think, for practices to understand that every time you add a medication, um, there is inherently some risk associated with that. And I come from it from trying to make um, medication management as patient-centered as possible so that practices are engaging patients um, in helping patients to understand why they're taking medications, how they're supposed to take them, when they're supposed to notify practices when they're having problems, um, that type of thing. And I think that um, the basis of that is really um, 
engaging them on the front end when they first walk in the door, whether that's asking them about their medications in a systematic way, but then throughout the the clinic visit, then um, asking them particular questions about maybe um, complications they're having or side effects from their medications. I didn't share with our listeners that uh, Amanda is an internist, a specialist in internal medicine, and I'm also an internist. I remember one of my mentors telling me that we're internists, we prescribe medicine, that's what we do. We don't do many procedures, we don't do surgery. So his point was, we've got to get it right, um, both the prescribing of the correct medication, but also making sure that we're really following the best practices that we can about how we help our patients with the medications that they use, about about the safety of the systems. And, And so... Amanda, you and I both um, uh, trained in a similar program about patient safety, and I know I was exposed a lot to medication management in the hospital setting, in the inpatient setting, but I remember thinking during uh, my um, er- the earlier parts of my career around patient safety that that when it came to medication safety and medication management in the outpatient setting, in the ambulatory setting, that we really had, we really were further behind than than the work in the hospital setting. Have you seen that in the work that you have done professionally? And then maybe tell us a little about what it's been like working with uh, ambulatory practices as you as you bring over some of the best practices from the hospital setting and some of the concepts from patient safety from the hospital setting and then are working with uh, outpatient practices. So you're correct. The body of knowledge and the best practices that have been outlined thus far have been mostly focused on inpatient care, uh, particularly for um, acute care hospitals. So I've been part of several multi-site funded studies to develop best practices around medication reconciliation And that's a little bit more narrow than medication management, which to me is a broader term that includes things like adherence and appropriateness. But if we focus in on just medication reconciliation, it's been a joint commission uh, national patient safety goal since um, 2006. And so that's many years ago now, but we still struggle even on the inpatient side of how to do that well. So through several funded projects, we've developed a best practices toolkit, which is freely available through the AHRQ website, as well as the Society of Hospital Medicine website. And um, you're exactly right that those best practices have not really been applied to ambulatory care, whether that be specialty care or primary care. So the body of knowledge is not as well developed, but I think there are important aspects that we have developed as best practices on the inpatient side that can be modified and applied to uh, ambulatory care. Um, And those best practices really um, come in sort of some big buckets. One of them is around obtaining a good medication history. And I think there are skill sets that we have developed and, and developed some competencies around that could be translated into the outpatient setting. I think the the trick of taking best practices inpatient and, and translating them to outpatient, one is that the time frame is different, uh, that 
a practitioner on the outpatient setting maybe has a 10 to 20 minute visit and trying to get all that information complete and accurate is a challenge. So we know that that's one difference. Also, um, you know, in the inpatient setting, patients are there. Uh, and so I can go back to them multiple times, which again is a luxury that in the outpatient setting is a little bit harder to facilitate. Although now with patient portals and uh, phone calls from nursing staff and providers, that could be an avenue as well. So some of the work around medication management may need to be offloaded from the actual visit to before or after the visit so that the efficiency of the visit is increased. Um, but the information is still there and uh, available for both the, the patient and the provider. Um, I think so So getting a medication history is really the most critical step in the whole process um, because, as I say, garbage in is garbage out. So we know that medication errors, um, which could be obviously are unintentional, um, can be Um, transmitted down the road um, during whether it be a hospitalization or a clinic visit. So if you don't have the right information on the front end, that translates to errors on the back end and can potentially then harm patients when they are going home. So the critical step is at the beginning of getting a good medication history Other big buckets are to have the reconciliation step, which is really taking that history and comparing it to what the the physician or practitioner wants to change, so starting and stopping or increasing, decreasing doses type of thing. And then the final step that's really um, so important as well is that the provider um, document any changes to the medication list, and then that information is Um, documented in the medical record for the next practitioner to see, but as well as transmitted to the family and caregiver in a patient-friendly manner. So those I would say is where we have intervened. We have different interventions amongst those three main sort of uh, steps of medication reconciliation. On the outpatient setting, I think, as I said, the challenges are the time um, and also the staffing. So um, a lot of hospitals have moved towards um, utilizing the best trained staff to help with medication reconciliation. And in the hospital, that tends to be pharmacists, clinical pharmacists. There are many hospitals that have uh, utilized um, pharmacy technicians. And so in my work, that's what I would actually like to move towards in the outpatient setting is seeing if pharmacy technicians who are well-trained in taking medication histories can actually help with care in the ambulatory setting because we don't have a lot of information in in scientific studies around whether um, medical assistants who typically are the patient are the people often that are rooming patients in the outpatient setting are really well trained and have um, the skills and knowledge and abilities to to take medication histories and do it efficiently and effectively we also know from other studies that nurses Um, on the inpatient side are very busy and they may have multiple patients they're taking care of at the same time. And from looking at the time it takes to do these tasks, nurses often don't have enough time to dedicate to them um, and provide the highest quality medication reconciliation, particularly around medication history taking. So 
in clinics, that translates to, again, you know, do the nurses have time to do that when they might be actually doing skills that are at the highest level of their certification? So, for example, they may be counseling patients about diet and exercise, or they may be giving, giving medications or vaccinations, things like that. So I think one of the areas that we don't know much about is how can this be done in the outpatient setting? And utilizing everybody to the to the best of their abilities to make it um, uh, an efficient and high quality process. Amanda, thank you so much for giving us that overview. Um, I am not a clinician; I'm a healthcare economist by training, and so I always look at things um, from a slightly more systematic and um, programmatic angle. And when I think back to several years ago when my mom went through um, oncology treatment, actually dovetails with one of the things you just talked about in outpatient setting. I remember we were asked to bring in all of her medications in a Ziploc bag. Um, And that is what led to, in addition to the history, that is part of what um, allowed the physician to double-check what she was taking right now. Um, And it was hard with two siblings, um, two siblings taking care of a parent, and um, sometimes medications would be missed. One of the ways that we were really aided as a family is with the pharmacist, right? Um, Often the pharmacist would double-check, and there would be electronic checks there, that would let us know that something had been filled from the primary care office that would be um, an error. So as you look at high level, what could be done differently is is an HIE, you know, better electronic connection, something that you see could really help in um, connecting inpatient, outpatient, um, you know, from especially from an outpatient setting, looking toward value-based care, knowing that HIEs are going to be required um, moving into um, advanced payment models. That's a great question. Definitely think that uh, HIEs can play a critical role in this, along with obviously not duplicating care. Um, so your first part of your um, comments, so we do know that pharmacists are the best suited, and I would include in that sort of pharmacy staff now, as we've demonstrated in several studies, to, to be involved and provide the highest quality medication management services. From a system standpoint, there are health systems that are investing in pharmacists to do sort of offline um, population level monitoring. And what I mean by that is, for example, looking across a whole population of patients that a system is taking care of and seeing, okay, these patients have a high risk of cardiovascular disease, but they're not on a statin, which is a drug that treats cholesterol. So, And then targeting those high-risk patients by having the pharmacist reach out to their provider and say, hey, we want you to know that this patient could possibly benefit from being on this type of medication. So there's sort of that um, monitoring and then intervening uh, type of uh, intervention. Um, And then I think that many 
there are not many outpatient clinics um, who can have a pharmacist on staff, right? So it's it's a very expensive um, but very worthwhile uh, um, uh, person to have on staff. And we've done some really interesting work around return on investment when you do, uh, at least in the hospital setting, when you hire a pharmacist, how many errors can you avoid? How many dollars associated with medication errors can you avoid around readmission or extended lengths of stays and things like that? Um, and I think those types of um, economic arguments are strong, and we need to make those similar arguments in the outpatient setting. The other aspects that I think pharmacists can be involved in, as you mentioned, the HIE piece of that, certainly HIE's um, health information exchanges were uh, supposed to be set up across the country so that we were having access to information across health systems that weren't talking to each other via the differing computer systems. So... I think I also work in the Veterans um, Administration, Veteran Department of Veteran Affairs, excuse me. And um, one of the things that's been wonderful about that system is that they have a unified electronic health record. And so I can, in Nashville, I can see a veteran who comes to see me uh, in the hospital and I can see all of their records from, you know, Walla Walla, Washington's VA. Um, and so that certainly um, decreases uh, the risks, I think, associated with um, patients moving between healthcare systems. Another thing that a lot of health systems have tried to import through their electronic health record or have access to are large um, pharmacy benefit management databases. So, for example, like SureScripts, where um, I think through like an EHR like Epic, you can have access to pharmacy-filled data, just like you were saying. Um, without having to call the pharmacy, that information is getting imported into the electronic medical record. It's not perfect. There are errors in that, and sometimes you do have to call and verify. But having information about fill histories is critical, and that is something that outpatient clinics probably um can do and and may need to do for their highest risk patients is really to find out when when were these medications last filled and that gives you an idea not only about adherence but about who else is prescribing for those patients. Uh, thank you so much for that um, for that detailed explication. You know, it seems like on every single show, Thomas, we end up talking about either social return on investment or return on investment in general. I think we need to add to our best practices schedule an entire show or two about ROI. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Amanda. Amanda, how big of a problem is this? That's a great question. There have been estimates about the magnitude of medication errors and the downstream effects of them. The best data that we know of is probably from the CDC the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, so the government uh, sort of databases that follow um, unanticipated uh, health care, so usually emergency department visits um, due to medications. I would say those databases underestimate the magnitude of the problem. Um, 
We know from a lot of studies, particularly as patients move across settings of care, that those are the really vulnerable times that we're taking care of patients. So if I'm discharging a patient and, Thomas, you're seeing them in clinic as follow-up, that's a really critical time. And we know that about two-thirds um, you know, of patients ha- are at risk for having um, medication errors during that time. So it's it's pretty prevalent. I would say the other thing about these national databases is that they underestimate because it's underreported. So if somebody comes back to the hospital to me um, and they were not taking their insulin correctly and they were admitted with hypoglycemia, many times that's not coded well in the electronic health record and in the coding and billing. And so, you know, I think practitioners see it every day, but it may not be uh, in the record that can then be abstracted to get at these statistics, uh, national statistics. So um, certainly um, as people get older and they're on more medications, the risk also increases. I know my experience in the clinical setting has been that if I look hard enough, I feel like I find errors more often than I don't, particularly, as you mentioned, in our patients that are on numerous medications. They may be on 8, 10, 12, 15 or more medications. Yeah, certainly uh, polypharmacy, which is taking five or more chronic medications, and even hyperparlypharmacy, which is nine to ten or more medications, certainly puts you at risk for medication errors. And you're right. Um, there have been some estimates that uh, you know upwards of 90% of patients seen in the outpatient setting have um, medication errors in their record. Wow. Is there any part of medication management that is winnowing down the number of medications that a patient is on? Because you just mentioned polypharma and you just mentioned gosh, nine or more medications. And, um, and I always put the disclaimer in here that I am not clinical, but, um, you know, as somebody who I mentioned before has seen a parent go through that, um, I can only imagine what, and as somebody who has had children, right? So, um, when I got um, late stages in pregnancy with twins as advanced maternal age, you know, I was on a number of medications. And, and I remember the doctors always wanting to pull down those number of medications. So is that any part of medication management or is that something else? Is medication management really just trying to, to track and monitor what a patient is on? So for me, it does include um, what we call deprescribing or de-escalation. So there tends to be this um, trend that, like, for example, um, we give you a medication um, for, uh, let's say somebody has an exacerbation of, of uh, asthma and they're given, uh, you know, a steroid or they may have COPD and they're given a steroid. Well, um, then the doctor finds it hard to wean that person off the steroid because they're still having wheezing. Well, then that leads to, okay, now I need to give you um, a medication that protects your stomach because the steroid can cause ulcers and then you can have bleeding ulcers. So then you add another medication because you have, um, you know, uh, you're trying to prevent ulcers. Um, and so it's this uh, prescribing cascade that many people talk about um, where you're treating one medication because of a potential or actual side effect of, of the other. And uh, that can be very dangerous. And, and we see that a lot, um, particularly in older patients. And, and the risk for them is even greater. 
And we're actually engaged in two very large, um, actually two of the largest to date studies where we are um, looking to deprescribe medications for older patients in order to prove that if you stop medications, do patients have better outcomes? And that's we think that that is um, that's our hypothesis, and that probably will pan out. We don't have the results yet, but from some smaller studies that have been done already, um, it does show that deprescribing has um, some positive outcomes for patients. Um, many times, they've been those studies have been focused on certain classes of medicines. So, one example that got a lot of press was uh, a study called Empower around deprescribing benzodiazepines. Uh, and those are medications like Xanax and um, they're, they were traditionally used for sleep and anxiety. Um, they are addictive and um, they're very dangerous, particularly for older patients. And so um, some of the smaller studies have focused on just one class of medication, but the the um, research that we're doing now actually is um, fully encompassing of all the medications. And so we have a protocol to look at what is the patient taking, again, by starting with getting a good medication history and then applying certain uh, questions like, is this patient benefiting from this medication? Are the harms outweighing the risks? Um, does this patient even have the diagnosis anymore that the medication was prescribed for? So we're doing it in a systematic way, and we're then tracking patients um, over a long period of time to see how their outcomes are, particularly around their functional status. So we know that um, when patients are on a lot of medications, um, they don't do well physically. So they have a harder time with things that we call geriatric syndromes, for example, falls and incontinence and mobility issues. And so that's what our studies are really looking at. Um, there are probably advantages for younger people as well by coming off of these medications. Um, and we know with the opioid epidemic that um, chronic opioid use for uh, pain is usually not the the best solution. So, you know, Amanda, you bring up the opioid epidemic, uh, which has been such a prominent issue uh, nationally for the last few years, and is certainly something that uh, we've worked with our practices around. Could you share maybe one of the more promising? Um, examples or stories you've seen in your work the the last year or two with practices sort of leading towards better medication management when it comes to opioids? One of the practices um, in Tennessee reached out to the, their coach and then to me um, around opioids. Uh, and this was a, um, a family practice um, clinic, and they were very frustrated um, by patients coming to them, uh, perhaps doctor shopping, uh, being very patients being very frustrated uh, about not getting their opioids uh, refilled and um, all the red tape involved in that. And I would just place this in the context of that as a PTN, we really tried to uh, emphasize the use of the CDC toolkit around opioids and, and the state guidelines. Um, and we had tried to do some education around that. And um, the the clinic was uh, really felt like they needed to do something at a system level to change uh, sort of the culture and expectations uh, for patients and providers in their clinic. And so um, 
with the help of their coach and uh, some references that I provided, they really explicated a, a clear policy around, you know, who are we going to prescribe for? What type of patient? What are the um, expectations of the patient? So they're going to have to call. Um, they'll talk to, you know, one person of the staff. They'll get one message around refills and the you know when when those can be refilled and how do they get refilled um and how do they call about questions and things like that so just part of it is just i think getting everybody on the same page and making sure that it's clear um and that they would not tolerate um people who were attempting to doctor shop or try to get prescriptions early or, or make a lot of excuses. So they, they were feeling almost bullied by patients. And so they uh, really were trying to make it very clear so that everyone knew what was going on. Um, so they've put some of these um, policies and procedures into place and they've been collecting data and, um, I don't have the data in front of me at the moment, but I can tell you by looking at it that they've had, you know, decreases in not only the number of prescriptions that they've been giving out um, across their whole practice, but they've also looked at individual providers and making sure that those trends are decreasing over time. Um, Even they've looked at dose reductions as well. So even that is uh, an improvement. So we know that, high-dose opioids are, are higher risk for patients. Um, and so I, they've made some really great strides, and I think that it takes those system-level changes um, around culture and around policies and procedures um, and uh, making sure that everybody is aligned as far as uh, opioids. It's a great example and I'm familiar with the practice that you mentioned, and I agree they've done some great work. So thank you for your help working with them. Amanda, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on Best Practices today. All of the information you shared on medication management, your examples, and your work in general just really explicates how important this is, not just for the larger system-wide level of health care, but also points to why it is important for each and every patient and family. And I, and I want to thank you. You're very welcome. For listeners, I want to remind you that at the bottom of this episode link, we will be putting Um, references down in the show notes where you can click and get information on medication management. So Amanda spoke about the CDC. So we'll have some links to CDC references. We'll have some information about about opioid strategies. Um, I can say that Amanda, I know personally, does some extraordinary work in the opioid space. In fact, one of my um, most amazing um, staff members um, is now working with and for Amanda, so I can attest that um, she does some great work, and we'll be sure to put some links to this, um, to all of her work and about medication management in general down in the show notes. So now, Amanda, we're going to wrap up our show in the way we do each and every week, as our listeners are becoming familiar with, and we're going to end with three questions. 
and I'm going to let Thomas kick it off. All right. Question one, if you were to refer our listeners to one resource that's really been integral to your transformation work in TCPI, what would it be? It's hard to pick one. Something that is overlooked a lot, um, and again, this is me coming from the sort of patient-centered care uh, approach, is um, a simple three-question screen around literacy, uh, health literacy, in fact. Um, and it's just a good way to kind of gauge where are your patients at? Uh, what are, how are they coming to you? What do they understand? Because uh, it really comes down to communication, uh, making it clear communication with your patients who may have low health literacy. That is that they don't understand medical language and processes as well as other people do. And it's not something that, um, is taught in medical school very often or in nursing school, pharmacy school. Um, but there is a brief three-question screening item uh, that can give you some idea. And then that, I think, places into context how you talk with patients about their medications or about the procedure they need to have or going to a specialist um, is really then you can take sort of that universal precaution of not overestimating their understanding and approach them uh as I say to many of my trainees, uh, as as you would like a third grader. So not not to discount people's level of intelligence, but we don't want to overassume that people understand just based on their level of education that they understand the the health information that you're explaining to them. That's a great recommendation, Amanda. And one of my favorite quotes is um, I think it was Einstein who said that if you can explain something to someone like a sixth grader, um, then you've truly got the concept. And I would, I would lower that to third grade. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's um, to, a, to somebody who's six. Yes, that's great. Our next question is, is there a book on your bookshelf right now that you would recommend to our listeners? So, you know, I actually looked at my bookshelf before this podcast uh, to think about what, what would be useful. And then there's a book called Quality by Design that I really like by Nelson Batalden and Godfrey, I think. Um, during my fellowship in quality and safety, I was lucky enough to uh, get to know Paul Batalden, who's one of the sort of champions of patient safety. And um, it's just a really good sort of very practical book um, on how to uh, create system change, um, and it focuses in on the microsystem. And uh, for those of you who don't know what the microsystem is, that means like what is the actual workplace where you are. So that might be for um, that might be on the clinic level. That might be in a smaller unit of a clinic. So maybe it's the provider and their nurse. Um, but it's how to focus in and make changes by using the you know traditional PDSA cycles. Um, so I would recommend that book to the listeners. And our last question is, what is one key component that a practice needs to put in place before transformation to value-based care can really get traction? I think that it would pay dividends for everybody in the practice to learn basic QI skills. Um, and I think the only way that you can create value-based care and change is really to look at data uh, and then learn how to make changes based on that. So I would say um, training everybody in quality improvement uh, would would really be one of those key components. Well, and, um, that's actually 
Uh, it's actually right in line with a couple of episodes we did a few weeks ago on quality improvement and on looking at your data and how important it is um, to do that. We actually interviewed uh, Thomas Fain on that. And so um, look back in your best practices episode log, and Amanda, you'll be able to look back and listen to those. And so uh, we wholeheartedly agree with that. So thank you for that recommendation. And good plug. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Well, again, again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, and Amanda, again, thank you. I can't um, – this really is such an important topic. As we look toward the models that are about to be released, the new primary care models, um, the models that are coming down the pike, um, bundled payments, and those that are going to include more specialists – This is really a great topic that is going to tether together lots of different kinds of work. And and so um, advanced payment models and different kinds of value-based care are going to require this integrated integrated systematic look at what kind of – what kind of care is the patient getting and all over from different kinds of physicians – wherever they're getting care and beginning with all the medications they're taking is a great place to start. So thank you for being with us and listeners as always. Thanks for joining us on best practices and see you again next week. You have been listening to best practices, a podcast showcasing the best of the mid South practice transformation networks, primary and specialty care practices that have undergone substantial quality improvement transformation and the subject matter experts that have enabled this work as part of the CMS initiative, TCPI. For more information, we invite you to visit MidSouthPTN.com. Subscribe to Best Practices and hear all of our transformation stories. This work was funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, under grant number 1CMS. 331549-03-00. The contents provided are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or any of its agencies. The views and opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Vanderbilt University Medical Center or its affiliates, and they may not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes.